Well, good morning. It's good to have everybody here. I'm going to do like William. Well, good morning. A grace-filled good morning. Uh, I know probably some of you thought I came up here at the wrong time, which I do tend to do, uh, because generally uh, William or, or Roy or Jeff or someone will be coming forward to, uh, to do the reading portion, but today's text is very long. Um, and I will, uh, I will give you a, a cheater, a cheat sheet here. I'm actually not going to make it through all of the, uh, all of the text today. So I'll cheat a little bit. I'll put myself out there. Um, I will skip some and tell you you've got to do homework on your own because there's no way we're getting through all of this. Um, I actually learned from a, from a mistake that Jeff Mock made uh, yesterday morning uh, when he was teaching through 2 Samuel. Um, and I'm not going to bite off more than I can chew like he did. Uh, so that, so that's, that's that. Also, just to, um, we sang uh, two songs uh, in the beginning, and Michael um, apologizes to everyone because he had them in the wrong order, so he's sorry about that. Um, his wife brought up that nobody knew about it, but Michael and three other people, but now, now we all know we're a family. Amen? So pray for Michael. <laughs> pray for Michael, pray for Michael. Um, all right, so we are in the book of Mark, closing things up here. Um, I'll say also, uh, just backing up a little bit, keep uh, John Nicholas in your prayers as he's off at school, um, plowing quite a bit, and and really just kind of getting to, I was talking to Tammy before service, seeing some really cool pictures from him. He was uh, held a, 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 Gutenberg, a Gutenberg Bible in his hands um, and got to see that and some first printings uh, of scriptures out of Scotland. So just some really cool experiences he's getting on top of, of course, his, his studies. So keep him in your prayers. He's got lots of writing to do um, in addition to keeping up with the editing requests that people place on his plate, JD. So keep John in your prayers. Okay, so this... This passage, it's so funny, uh, Roy said this morning when, when he was teaching, it's like, man, I just feel like I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going to do justice to exactly what you said, Roy, so I apologize. But basically the takeaway was, I feel like I'm not going to be able to explain this as well as I want to, no matter how, how hard I try. Um, and I feel the same with this, because the weight of the passage that we have today, it's, it's kind of the high center of Mark, right? This is the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's so difficult to put enough weight on the crucifixion of Christ, to really understand the burden that Christ took on in this moment. So just know that I won't do as well as I want to, and there's so much more here than we'll be able to do this morning, but let that be an encouragement to you to spend time here as we go throughout the week. Um, one thing that, that, that I do want to say, though, is that the Christian life is expensive. Um, it's very expensive. And I don't mean in terms of dollars. I mean in terms of Jesus' lordship. Jesus' lordship over us was bought at such a great cost. And, and I think sometimes we can, you know, we, we get stuck in these, these camps. You know, we have these church camps, and they're not real. They're both just made up, right? There's, there's legalism, and then there's license, right? There's this concept that, you know, you can do whatever you want. Jesus paid for it. And then there's this concept that you can, you know, you, you have to keep the law. And, and really neither is true. Somewhere, somewhere in the middle is truth. And in Christ, we have so much freedom in who we are. Um, so much freedom in who we are in Christ. And so I, I, just, I want us to be able to take away, though, the cost of the Christian life was high. But the cost of the Christian life was paid already, and it was paid on Christ. And that's what we're going to see today in, in Mark as he takes us through the, the crucifixion story. Um, and so my challenge this morning really is to make sure, first of all, I think that we understand and appreciate the history. Because time and time again, and we, you know, I guess kind of joke about it a little bit in Sunday school, but it's a very serious, a very serious matter. Time and time again, tradition gets it wrong. You know, tradition gets it wrong. So I want us to appreciate the history that is in this text, but I also want us to see the high cost of the Lordship of Christ. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be burning through a lot of passages. I want to encourage you to write a few of these down and look at them throughout the week. And so I'm going to give you one now. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Um, and, I, and I want you to look at that because when we say that the Christian life is, is expensive, when we say that the cost of the Christian life is high, 
has nothing to do with possessions or objects or, or worldly things, right? Paul talked about being content in much and being content in little. Both situations. Neither specifically, neither only, both situations, content in much and little. And also, we're encouraged to not, not put up our treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. Read Matthew 6, 19 and 20. No matter where you are, no matter what your lot is, God is to permeate every aspect of your life. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, God should permeate every aspect of the believer's life. I was talking to a, a friend in the, in the outside the building recently. And we're kind of joking around, but talking about the scriptures. And he asked, like, why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't Jesus tell the disciples in the end they were going to die? Right? Why, why not let them in on that nugget? That, that would be pretty key. It's almost like I, I used to joke with, uh, with Brianna that um, you get pregnesia, right? You forget the misery that pregnancy was. Not all of us have forgotten. Some of us are in the midst of it. I'm not talking about myself. I'm not talking about my wife. Just saying some people. I remember when Brianna was pregnant one time with our oldest son, uh, Ty. She's like, I just want to lay on my stomach. So we went to the beach, and I hewed a hole for her, and she was able to lay on her stomach at the beach. She was like, yeah, that was actually terrible. Very uncomfortable. So pregnesia, though, blocks all those memories out. And then you're ready for number two and number three. Well, why not just say, hey, are you sure you want to get pregnant? It's going to be terrible. Remember, you know, get sick feel uncomfortable, can't move, turn and hit stuff, right? Wear weird pants. But what's on the other side of that experience is fantastic. If the focal point isn't the one bad kind of right here and now moment, it's really not that bad, right? I'm being dramatic. The focal point is what comes after. And that's what's true of the believer's life. Why distract someone by saying, hey, there's going to be something earthly that's going to be uncomfortable. When you get past the earthly, when you get towards the heavenly, when you get to the kingdom of God, this is nothing. This is nothing at all. Like, we're not going to talk about any of our experiences in the presence of God. Maybe the first half of forever is just trying to get your mouth to move again because you're so in awe. Angels who have been in God's presence for eternity past can only repeat one word. They're like authors of Hillsong. Holy, holy, holy. The high cost of Jesus' lordship over our lives was the most significant, perhaps, physical discomfort, torture of the perfect, holy, precious God-man. I mean... Jesus, embodying all of the qualities of God, perfect love, and we'll see him spit on. Can you think of anything more offensive than being spit on? That's instant rage. Don't do that to me. Being spit on, being hit in his face, people rolling dice for his clothes like it was a game presented a, a, a criminal who murdered someone in the insurrection in the perfect Lamb of God, and the people scream, crucify him. What is this rage? I think it was Ray Comfort that said, you know, you swing a hammer, you hit your finger. People take God's name in vain. What is that in us if that's our reaction? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 12 are key and are important in understanding this. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Perfect through suffering. 
And Jesus was going to suffer at great, high, personal, physical anguish. We, we, this is where I say I'm completely aligned with Roy. No matter how hard I try for myself and for us, could never communicate clearly enough the weight of the wrath of God against the elect poured out wholly and fully on Christ. And we'll, we'll see that Jesus receives every drop. Here, Jesus, have a mild sedative. No. Every drop of wrath. To bring many sons to glory, made perfect through suffering. So we have to understand the depth of God's great love before we can appreciate it. You ever see people who are just blown away by, by, a, by someone's love, by a couple's love? See, uh, especially in, in times of COVID, you know, you see people who have been separated from their, from their loved ones, husbands and wives who have been separated, and then they're, they're reunited, and everybody's blown away by their love. Nobody was really blown away the whole time they've been loving each other, but as soon as the pain of separation happened, when that is rejoined, that's when everyone notices and so the great love of Christ, the great love of God, is most clearly exposed to our sinful mind when we see His great suffering. Without blood, there's no remission of sin. It's because of us that all of this happens. It's not because of God. It's because of us. Because we're broken. Because as John 3, 19 shows, we loved, loved the darkness more than the light. God had to violate our will in order to reach us for salvation. And so if you feel in yourself, you're like, uh, you know, Romans, the book of Romans tells us that none seeks after God. No, not one. That's a math equation, right? If you write this on the board, the number of people who seek after God after you work through all the weird stuff, like when I was a janitor in Massachusetts, I used to work in this library at a college. And at night, I would work on a chalkboard to work out math problems. Thank you. Some of you are part of high society and you understand what I'm talking about. If you work through that kind of a math problem, right, where the chalkboard is all over the place, when you get to the end, the number of people that seek after God is zero. And so if you find yourself seeking within yourself, who, who is this God? What is this gospel? That is not you. That's the Spirit of God drawing and wooing you, referred to as the hound of heaven. You should submit to that. But before we can appreciate the great love of God, we have to see the terrible cost. Mark chapter 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. To carry his cross. Now, maybe in your mind right now, you see Jesus. His hair is like mine. I'm trying out for the part of Jesus at the Christmas play this year. He has a cross. It's sideways on his shoulder, and, and he's successfully dragging her. Maybe you've seen someone on the side of the road, and that's what they're doing. Tradition gets it wrong. Sorry. Thanks for playing. Try again. Simon is compelled to carry this beam for Jesus. This word compelled used three times in Scripture, twice in the Gospels for this scene, and one other time in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Forces. Same word. You see how he was compelled to carry this cross for Christ? It's not like the Romans came up to him and said, hey, listen, if you carry this cross, we'll buy you lunch this afternoon. Or, hey, buddy, can you do me a big favor? I would appreciate it if you would consider carrying this man's beam for him. It's about 100 pounds, and we're going to parade him all through town. See, because what was happening was, you have Jesus is carrying this beam. He's had hunks of flesh ripped from his body because the Romans had dragged 
chains, not chains, excuse me, whips with chunks of sharp things across his body, ripping flesh from him. His back is exposed, perhaps organs showing through the ribs. And now he's trying to carry a 100-pound beam as they parade him through town. And what would have been in front was a, was a Roman holding a sign that says, the king of the Jews, because there was no CNN, there was no Fox News, there was no Twitter. They don't know why he's coming through town, but they do now because it's written on a chalkboard coming through town for everyone to see this tortured man whose face has been spit on, his clothes have been stolen, he's being humiliated. King of kings, Lord of lords, God's active agent of creation being mocked and brutalized by his own creatures who he loves. Perhaps suffering for the very sin of someone in this parade. Perhaps people who struck him. They do not know what they do. Simon is forced to carry this cross-beam portion. This, the word is actually from a Persian word. The king would have had these centurions. They would have had uh, you know, uh, runners or couriers. And these couriers were empowered to do whatever they needed to get the message from one place to the next. In fact, they would be stationed in certain areas. You ever watch FedEx when they have your package and you're like trying to follow this zany pattern that it's going on? You have no idea why things are going where they are. Most of the time, they're probably getting it right. That was, it doesn't seem right, but that was probably the most effective way. Maybe it, two trucks parked side by side, swapped your package out. It drove somewhere weird, but that put it on the next delivery truck to be out the next day. And so this process with these couriers was designed to be efficient. So maybe they would sprint from one station to the next, and they would pass the message off because the king's message needed to get somewhere quickly, and fresh legs would do it better than one person running the whole distance. And so they could commandeer whatever they wanted in order to be able to get that message there in the most effective and efficient way. And so they commandeer Simon because they're going to take Jesus the long route because everyone is going to see what happens when you mess with Rome, and everyone is going to see what happens when you mess with the Jews. You will not take this town over with this message of Christ. But they will. Because God is doing something through all of this. He's fulfilling everything He ever said that He would do from the very beginning. From the, from the very beginning of the gospel. He said, you're going to bruise His head, but I will crush the serpent. Simon the Syrian, from the northern coast of the continent of Africa. Maybe 800 miles away. I know you can't see it. We see towards the bottom of the map there, there's a tan section with a red dot above it. That's where we are. And from your vantage point, you're going to cut left about 100 miles down and up in a semicircle. You're going to get to Jerusalem 800 miles later. This is the journey that he's just been on because where is he going? He's going to the Passover. He's leaving from the synagogue that's in this area because the Jews from dispersia. There's some people there. There's a synagogue there. There's native people there. There's Jewish people there. This is a melting pot of people, cultures, languages, thoughts, beliefs, customs even. And so he's walked some 800 miles. The interwebs and all its knowledge would say that the average person walks between three and four miles an hour. Something tells me we Americans are slowing that average down. For fit, healthy people, maybe it's five. So let's give him four miles. Walking eight-hour days, it's going to take him a month, 30, 32 days to walk to there. And he's there for the Passover. Can you imagine the frustration of the Romans what, what, compelling him to carry the beam? It doesn't even match the painting. He's going to carry the beam. For this swollen, torn, bleeding, struggling man who maybe in his mind is a criminal. He doesn't know who this is, perhaps. Read later in Acts chapter 6 and verse 9. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, the Cyrenians, of the Alexandrians, of those from Silica and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. This is a 
living, breathing church? Does he bring that message back with him? Does he talk of this experience? Does he talk about what he's seen? Does he realize what he's just participated in? Could you imagine, in retrospect, realizing what you'd just done, participated in, been a part of? How impactful. It's like I said uh, the other day, again, not not to bring up too much high theater, but uh, the movie The Night at the Museum. There's a, there's a scene where um, the night guard goes to, goes to talk to the king, and he's like, oh, you're Jewish. We had Jews, and he was an Egyptian king. He said, we loved all of your singing. We had such a great time with you guys. And then the night guard, the Jewish guy, says, yeah, we didn't enjoy that. We didn't enjoy that so much. Acts chapter 2, verse 10, talks about an area in Egypt, parts of Libya, being part of the Cyrene. People from visiting from, from Rome, from all over the place, are now converging so that what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit is going to fall and the church is going to be born because Christ suffered the full weight of God's wrath to build His church to reach nations. And they're all gathering together in this place with all of these different languages and customs and tribes and tongues and nations are all coming together all because of what Jesus is doing in these scenes that we read about. Verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them and deciding what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. Again, this is the sign that was carried in the procession as they brought Jesus around through, through town, making sure everyone saw what happens if you mess with them. If you read in, in John uh, chapter 19, verses 19 and 22, you get a little bit more information around this scene. Um, Pilate wrote an inscription, he put it on a cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write, King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Amazing. Pilate grew a spine. But not really. He let a man that he knew was completely innocent go. He just decided to stand tall on what the sign would say as he torturously murdered him. He led him to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Um, If you go to Jerusalem, when you go to Jerusalem, when you look at places of Jerusalem... Everyone will tell you where Golgotha is. Maybe they're all wrong. Maybe they're all right. It's more of a tourism thing. People say maybe it's because the top of the hill looked like the top of the skull. Other people would say it's because that's where they would throw bones of people outside of the city gates. You're seeing them try to give him a mild sedative. They would maybe do that before they would lay them on the ground and nail them to the top of the cross piece through the through the wrists because they would hold better. They were you know, good at this. Um, someone said that they, the, the Romans may not have invented crucifixion, but they perfected it. They put a lot of thought into it. The person could be nailed. The person could be tied and strapped. Sometimes there would be a seat so they could get temporary uh, relief from this. They were very good at it. The idea of the sedative, some people would say, would come from Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7. Give strong drink to the one who's perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Um, pain medication is an odd thing. Um, maybe you've seen videos you know, the, the, on YouTube of the, the people who have gotten a tooth removed and usually they're messing with some poor kid. Kids are usually at the end of the pile of that kind of thing because they can't fight back, and when they do, it's just funny. You know, the poor kid is confused in the seat of the car, doesn't know what's happening, and it's bombed on pain meds saying goofy things, and it's funny. Now imagine Jesus was made perfect, the captain of our salvation, through suffering. 
not even a mild sedative, which almost sounds comical, right? Like for me, um, I put off dental care because I'm terrified of pain. I don't like it. And I don't want to bite the hand of, I can't not bite someone's hand that's all up in my mouth hurting me. It always cracks me up when the dentist is like, okay, let me know if this hurts. I'm like, bro, you are going to know if this hurts. There's a note in my file that says bite, and they put this uh, thing in the back of my teeth so that I can't close my jaw. I just can't sit there through it. I wouldn't put my hands in my mouth. Jesus isn't going to take the sedative. Doesn't it feel strange? A mild sedative. A mild sedative. They're nailing through his wrists, placing him on a beam. His back has been torn open. And the Romans were particularly cruel. Historians would write about this and say they would break open any scabbing that might be on the wounds of the back before they put them up on this cross. So now you imagine they've brought him to this place. They've nailed his body to this beam after he's refused the sedative. Now four soldiers are going to grab either side of this thing and they're going to hoist him up on a pole that's already present in the ground. They're going to nail that up. They're going to nail the sign and they're going to drive his feet into the cross. You might see that our cross is empty, though. It's finished. Jesus bore all of this weight of the wrath of God. But the wages of sin is what? Death. Jesus gives his spirit up. Jesus resurrects. Jesus comes back. Jesus walks and talks and eats meals with people. No pain medication. The guards are rolling dice for his clothing, maybe take them home as a memento, maybe put them on and be funny. A mockery. You read Psalm 22 and verse 18, though, and you think, man, I wonder, I wonder if they knew any of this. I wonder if they just knew that they were playing part in the story that was written before them. Psalm 22, 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing... They cast lots. Now, could you imagine if someone was off in the distance reading the scriptures and the, one of the Romans caught sound of that and said, wait a minute, that's what we're doing. God is not taken by surprise with any of this. Jesus told his disciples everything that was going to happen. When they tried to protect Jesus from this event, there's somebody gets an ear cut off, it's a whole thing. Jesus is nailed to this crossbeam. A Roman historian said that crucifixion is a torture fit only for slaves. This would have been in Roman culture, it would have been brutish to even talk of this. No one would bring it up in polite society. It was just such a torturous and awful way to die and slow. Insects, maybe burying themselves in you, unable to swat. You know, you sit in the backyard, you get mad. Like, we're, we're, we're freakish about the bugs, right? I, I treat my grass with the spray bottle stuff. It's probably killing me. We literally have a plant that's a citronella plant. I have torches that have citronella oil in them. I have murder spray for bugs. you imagine being affixed to a cross and able to defend yourself from any of these things? The sun is beating down. People are walking by and mocking. Deuteronomy 21 and 23. Let's skip to Philippians. Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even this most humiliating, torturous, awful form, he humiliated himself. He was in perfect control of every situation, of every scene. They try to stop him, they try to grab him, they say, we're going to make him king. He just walks through the crowds. I don't know if you know how crowds work, that's not how crowds work. He's in control of everything that's happening. He could make anything stop, but that would be the will of Satan. Maybe that Jesus would numb the pain a little bit. 
Right? We saw Satan try that with the, the temptation in the wilderness. 40 days, 40 nights. Jesus, why don't you just make these rocks into bread? You can do that. You go off this cliff. Scriptures say that God's going to make sure that not, you don't bash into the rocks. And we see in that scene, in that scenario, in that temptation, when Jesus is at the edge of his humanity, what does he rely on? Scripture. Always Scripture. And we're going to see that with Psalm 22 when there's nothing left in him. When he's at the end of, absolute end of himself. We've already seen, he knows what's coming in the garden. He's prayerfully preparing. He tells his disciples, why aren't you praying? Pray with me. Because they need it. Jesus is surrounded by relentless, angry dogs. Crucify him, they scream. People walk by and they mock him and they mock his sign. He's drawing from this picture that Psalm 22 gives. If, if you look at Psalm 22, verses 12 and 13, and, and really Psalm 22 is something you should just look at all week this week. I'm going to give you those two. Psalm 22 and Romans 12. Just be in those two as you think through, pray over this passage in the crucifixion. Psalm 22, verses 12 and 13 says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. This is the most appropriate description of what's happening. Both in the part that he'll quote in a moment around being forsaken, and also in the fuller context of the dogs and the lions that surround him, that encircle him, screaming, crucify him, soldiers mocking him, gambling over his clothing that's been taken from him, hoisting him up on a cross, being mocked even by someone else on the cross with him. Revelation chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. It's easy to look at this scene and to look at this scenario and feel like things are out of control, but things are in perfect control. It's awful, and people are responsible for their actions. These are actions that they want to take. But God, by His grace and His mercy and His sovereignty, is pointing His wrath through these things against the sins of the elect, which is why I say the Lordship of Christ comes at a very, very high cost. It's not a winking away of sin. It's a full reconciliation of sin on the innocent Christ who was mocked by His creation, of whom we would have stood in the crowd and shouted with them, crucify Him. And He doesn't hold that to our account. I'm really not going to be able to go further in the text than this, so I leave you with it. But I want, to, I want to talk some more about what happened, what the great exchange was on Christ. We talked about the weight, and, and, and I already said I'm not going to be able to treat as well as I desire to for myself and for us the weight of what Jesus bore. But I've tried, and, and you, you get what I'm saying. We can't appreciate it fully. We've tried. Here's what I want to point to. Um, there's a guy, his name was uh, Dr. Barnhouse, who pastored a church in Philadelphia, 10th Presbyterian in Philly, right up the road from us. Um, and there's a story where someone came to him and started having some idle side chatter, right, about how cool the building looked. And he said, uh, and this is my paraphrased version, okay? I just don't want to plagiarize, so I want to give full credit where credit's due. Um, so this is all his story. Guy comes to him, starts talking about the church building. Oh, it's a beautiful building, you know, this and that. And he said, yeah, it's pretty neat. This is where the, the you know, my, my version comes in. It's pretty neat. He says, uh, we brought some, uh, you know, some of the Italian people who built this other great structure in Italy and brought them here and they built it. But that's not why you're here, is it? And the guy says, no, it's just idle chatter. 
Sometimes we've got to cut to that, right? So easy to get caught up in the idle chatter. Say, neat, what are you struggling with? Neat, why are we talking? Neat, are we wasting our time? And so he says, neat, it's a cool building, that's awesome. Why are you here? And he says, well, I hear you on the radio, I listen to your program, and just had some questions for you. And so they're walking through this building, and you could probably imagine the guy's trying to be comfortable talking about different neat aspects of the building. And the doctor comes to a chalkboard, and he stops at the chalkboard. And maybe he, maybe he draws Golgotha, right, which would be the top of the skull, or the mountain, or Calvary, if you're Latin, which you're not. And he puts the crosses on the, on the hill. And he says, do you know what I'm drawing? And the guy says, yeah, I know what you're drawing. And so he, he starts with, with the drawings, and on one of them, he writes, in. Okay? Underneath one of them, he writes, in. He goes to the far side, leaves the one in the middle, because you know tradition, you know it's one Jesus on. He goes to the far side, and he writes, in. And then he gets to the middle, and he writes, not in. And, and he asks the guy, he said, you know, what, you, you know what that means, in? The guy says, I think I get it, but I'll bite. Tell me. He says, well, these guys are in sin. It's in them. It's indwelling, right? Just like if you've ever had chicken pox. I have bad news for you. Shingles is already in you. Freaks me out, man, because I had chicken pox. Now I know shingles is in me. You hear people talk about shingles? That stuff scares me, man. They say you feel like you're burning. I don't need that in my life. I already told you I'm afraid of pain. In sin, in sin, not in sin. Jesus wasn't in sin. So the example would be, um, I'm doing wheelies up State Street on my dirt bike, and I blow through a red light. Um, But nobody sees me. Now, I'm still in violation of blowing through that red light, but it's not being held against me because I wasn't caught. So the doctor continues his illustration. He goes to the, the one criminal side, and he got the, the hill with me here. He goes to the one criminal side who has in. And over him, he writes on. He said, you know what I mean by that? And the guy says, now I'm getting super lost. He said, well, his sin is going to be held on his own account. This is the criminal who's mocking Christ. Hey, if you're the, the Christ, if you're what the sign says over your head, why don't you get yourself down and get us down too? His sin is on his own account. And then he goes to the center cross, and it gets confusing because he writes, on. Wait a minute. The one who underneath says, not in, who's not in sin, has an on over his head. And then you take a line from the other criminal who Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. And he just draws a line from his head to Jesus. Because his sin is held on Jesus' account. And he can take that because there's no sin in him. If you're a developer, which I know you are, it's dev null. Send it to the dev null address. There's no account to hold that to. There's no guilt in Jesus. God paid it. Go back to the story we just had. Flesh ripped from his ribs. Paraded like a mockery around town. Soldiers beating him. And so maybe you would say to me, but what I've done all these things and everybody in the church has it all worked out. Of course they're Christians. Of course God loves them. They're good people. I'm going to tell you right now, you don't know these people. These aren't good people. We didn't come here because we're good. Quite the opposite. We're only here because we need Jesus. There's nothing in me and there's nothing in you that can do anything apart from Christ. We couldn't crawl our way to God. We couldn't build a pile of good works. And you say, but, but, I'm, a, but I'm an addict. Okay. This guy's hanging on a cross and does nothing. But hold his hand out to Christ and say, gimme. I love you. I trust you. And that undoes the curse. Because remember what happened in the garden. Satan, the, the, the serpent, who apparently like walked, right? Because he wasn't cursed to crawl on his belly quite yet. Freaky snake, okay? I'm afraid of spiders, snakes, and pain. Otherwise, I'm pretty solid. 
because I could run quick. You come at me, I'll beat you. By running away, I mean. Fast, baby. Serpent comes into the garden, comes up to Eve, whose husband was watching Greatest Catch on uh, whatever. <laughs> What's the TV show? It used to be a real show, but now it's just to turn guys into morons. It used to be a real stage, like National Geographic, right? You go on the remember, remember, I was a kid. We used to watch National Geographic. It'd be like Marty Stauffer's Wild America, you know? And he's sitting around the campfire talking about lions and stuff. My mom was like, how do they record him? He's in the woods by himself. And I was like, what? Do you camera crew with him? Anyway. So now it's just full of shows like, you know, crab fishing boats. And you watch these guys who do all this stuff. And then, you know, the husband just sits there and he's like, it's what Adam was doing in the garden when the serpent comes in and says to Eve, well, did God really say? Did God really say that you can't eat of that? Look at it, it's food. There's all kinds of stuff eating it, right? The bugs, you step on them, they live because there's no death yet, right? They go eat the fruit, they're fine, they're good. That's good. God is withholding something good from you. Do you know how much, Eve, you would enjoy it if you ate that? Something about a thing not being available or allowed makes it more attractive or more good. There's something about us. We're just never quite satisfied with what we can have. And so the serpent says to Eve, you, you can eat that. God's actually withholding good from you. And so Eve says, all right. And she eats the fruit. And then her husband tries it too, right? He finally looks up from Greatest Catch. Because, uh, you know, they play it back to back to back. So there was like a commercial break between episodes 27 and 28. So he takes a break. Eats the apple. Eats the fruit. Sin immediately enters into the world. Why? Because they didn't trust God's word. That's how sin entered into the world. They stopped trusting God to care for them. They thought, you're withholding good from me. This thing I want is better for me than obedience to you. And so that thief on the cross, the guilt in the world for whatever crimes, irrelevant because he trusted the word of God. He trusted the Lagos. He trusted Jesus' word for his salvation. Same is true for us. Now, if that thief thief on the cross, whatever the guy was guilty of. I don't know what he did. If he had come down off of the cross and re-entered into the world, does it mean he goes back to right whatever he was doing before? No, because the cost of lordship is high. First Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You have been healed in the past. He bore the weight of the requirement of your sin, God's measured wrath for your sin on Christ so that you would be dead to sin. And I tell you what, if, if, if you're a believer, am, am I saying you're not going to sin? No. Like, talk to anybody who's been a believer in here, and they'll tell you there's things, that, there's things they're wrestling with. There's things they're working on. There's things they're praying to God about. And that, right there, is the difference. Praying to God about the areas where I struggle, there's safety in that. Christ died for my sin. I could go straight to my Father and tell Him what's going on in my life. Because guess what? He already knows. He knows where I struggle. And what's bad for me is when I hide. Right? That's what you see Adam do in Adam in the garden, right? He thinks he's like the uh, hide and seek champion of the universe, right? Yeah, God comes in, he says, Adam, wh where are you? Can't find you. Sweet hiding place behind that rock over there. No. God comes in the garden and says, Adam, where are you? See, it's different. He wants Adam to contemplate and think about where he is. He wants Adam to be able to process the world around him because he's going to live in it. And as he processes the world around him, to God's glory and makes decisions that are honoring to God and people see that, maybe then they become compelled and they look on that. Now for us who are in Christ, when people see 
us process the world and think about the world and talk about our great God who loves us, not because we're perfect and we hold ourselves up by our bootstraps, but because we're broken, fallen on our face, laying on the cross of Christ for our very salvation. And we point to that. We point to him, not to my good works. My good works are trash. They're like a filthy garment. Study that one. That's what my good works are, is garbage. Luke 23, 42, and 43. We've got the criminal here who's about to have his arrow, an arrow placed from his head to Jesus' head because his sins will not be placed on him. They're about to be transferred to Christ in a moment. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something dangerous here and suggest to you that no one in any moment ever has felt better than this guy right here on a cross, assured by Jesus of his salvation. But then I'm going to take it a step further and say for us, these words are recorded for our benefit. This story is kept in Scripture so that we would know it and see it so that we can see that the requirement of our salvation isn't what people tell us. It's not perhaps what you've heard come out of the church. It's not that you get better, be better, and get to God. It's that you see Christ, and He becomes the treasure of your life, and you reach to Him for your salvation, and He becomes your assurance. Because as He said, those that the Father gives to me are in my hand, and they're secure in my grasp. Not because they hold on to my finger, because I grasp them, I hold them. And so we trust in Christ for our salvation. Not our good works. We already talked about good works. They're garbage. Not that we made a good decision for Christ because we already talked about that. None seeks after God. No, not one. My guy, Thomas, who has a bad nickname, in John chapter 20 and 28, answers Jesus with these Less than famous, though they should be more famous words. He says, my Lord and my God. This is what happens at salvation. We realize who Christ is. We realize who God is. We realize what holiness is. And Jesus becomes our Savior and our Lord. And so we come back to Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. And do we know who that is? It's Jesus. It was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory. Who are those many sons? They are the elect. They are those of us who see our sin before a holy and righteous God and call out to Christ with no good works to climb up on, just seeing with clarity who God is, seeing with clarity who Jesus is, feeling the Holy Spirit of God that calls us and convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, which is His very ministry. Becoming one that seeks after God because there aren't any. Becoming one of those who's called by God to Him for salvation. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Not me, not my good works. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So it's in the shadow of Hebrews 2 and what it has said that we come to know the high cost of Jesus' lordship. And we're commandeered like the siren to live as Romans chapter 12 describes the believer should live. All the implications of Romans chapter 12 are enabled because of Christ. Because we see Jesus as precious, we turn, we repent of our sin. Repenting of our sin is the undoing of the curse. It's saying, God, I see that your standard is holy and I can't work my way to it. So 
I see that your son Jesus died in this horrific way, became the perfect captain of my salvation. And so I can only undo the curse by trusting your word that says Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. So we do a 180 from trusting ourselves because our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand them? So we do a 180 from trusting ourselves. And when we turn and face, when we repent, we turn and face God and we follow Christ and he becomes our Lord. That's what salvation is. I don't have words for a magic prayer. I don't even know what it would be. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's save me. Maybe it's seeing how precious and holy Jesus is. Maybe it's you laying in bed and just weeping tonight to your God, to your Creator, to Jesus, your Savior, who will then become your Lord. And who then you can trust God with your struggles, with your difficulties. How much better is that than some God that's painted up in the sky with like rules that you have to follow and is angry that you watched a, a, a hot tub time machine, right? Who has rules and you said a potty word, so you're out. But if you repent again, maybe you can come back in as long as you keep being good. That's not the God of salvation. And so I would say for you, if for the first time maybe you see the gospel with clarity, you realize that you, before a holy and righteous God, aren't. And you see Jesus, a precious, holy, awesome Savior, and you say, I need that. Take it. Right now, pray in these last few moments as we close out. Pray to God. Whatever the words are for you, you can't get it wrong. But if you're struggling and you want to get them right, I don't have them, but let's talk. And in the end, you're going to pray that God would save you. And He's faithful and justified in doing so because of everything we just read about Jesus. I want you to see that because if you're struggling, thinking, I don't know if I'm worth it. God makes that determination. In eternity past, He already sent His Son to live perfectly, tempted in all every single way that you failed. Jesus has succeeded in not sinning because He's the God-man. And it was never, ever, ever the intention that you would not sin. Because sin entered into the world by doubting God at His Word. And so He sent His Son, giving us the opportunity to undo the curse of the law by trusting in His Son and His Word. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much for the high-cost Gospel that You have made so plain and so clear to us across Your Word, God. You have demonstrated to us time and time again. In Genesis chapter 3, You laid out Your Gospel. In Abraham and Isaac, You gave us a picture of the kind of deep sacrifice it would take from a father, but You picked up that implement of sacrifice and You took it in Your own hands and carried it forward. Until the day that your son would be the sacrifice for sin. And he 